You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. This week, we talked to Jodine Chisholm and Kendall Barker. Kendall is a nurse in UVA's Medical Intensive Care Unit, and Jodine is a nurse manager on 3 Central. They're both working on the front line and have treated some of those in our community who have been hospitalized with COVID-19. I love to like get people out of bed and do their hair and help them like feel like a human being and get well in that respect. Stay tuned to catch up with Charlottesville tomorrow and hear from a lawyer representing folks who have been detained by ICE in our area and are especially vulnerable to COVID-19. Can you start off by telling me a little bit about yourself? Yes. Um, So my name is Kendall. I have had the privilege of being a nurse at UVA in the MICU for coming up on five years. Outside of work, I think that you could say I'm perpetually in motion. So I love to, to run, to hike, to work out. I was trying to think of how to distinguish my personality, and I think that it's the fact that I am really fond of rooms full of people I don't know. Like, if you drop me in that venue, I'm pretty happy. Extrovert. Yes. <laughs> um, I've lived in the area all my life. I'm married to my wonderful husband, Todd, for 35 years, have four children, all who have wonderful spouses. I have two grandchildren, almost three. I've been an RN here at UVA for 38 years and all in acute care medicine. And 21 of those years, I've been a nurse manager here. Kendall Barger and Jodine Chisholm are both employees of UVA Health. But today, they're speaking from their experiences and opinions, not as representatives of UVA. How did you get into nursing? Why did you want to be a nurse? I went into nursing right out of high school, did undergraduate work at JMU, got an MSN at UVA. I I love to work with people, um, helping people, and nursing was a great fit for that. Under normal circumstances, what is your job like? What is the role of a nurse in a patient's care team? I think unpredictable is a really good word for that. We get to be the moment-by-moment care. You look at the clinical picture, so we're there with the patients at the bedside watching for Subtle changes, big changes, they're called hemodynamics, but blood pressure, heart rate, and then also personality changes can be like a subtle indicator of what is going on in your body and how sick you are. We also get to be a communication piece. So there's respiratory therapists, there's off-service physicians who do other, have other roles, and we get to kind of communicate between all those services to make sure that details don't get dropped. And then we also get a personal component of nursing. I want to know you, so your significant other, your children, your dog, your job, because all those things are part of your health. And I love to like get people out of bed and do their hair and help them like feel like a human being and get well in that respect. Basically, they manage really complex situations and complex care, and and they just pull it all together for the patient. It's a pretty uh, dynamic job. Can you take me through one of your shifts since the COVID-19 pandemic has come to Central Virginia? starting with when you walk in the door and just what happens throughout your day. Maybe asterisks on that is that every day is a little bit different. Sometimes you don't know when the emergencies are going to happen or what they're going to be like. So this is subject to change at literally any moment. As we enter the building now, we, we wash our hands and, of course, have a mask on. And we actually wear different scrubs. So you come in and you change clothes so that your clothes that you wear home around your family and your friends are clean. And then you have scrubs to take care of the patients in. 
working on one of the COVID units, which is now called a special pathogens unit. There's lots of donning and doffing of your isolation gear all throughout the day, um, which takes a little bit of extra time. We sort of have a huddle. Everyone's standing six feet apart with their mask on and set the tone for the day, go over important changes. And, and you know, with the, the COVID virus, there are a lot of changes in the way we do things. We learn things every day, specifically of the COVID patients. Those are one nurse to no more than two of those patients, just because putting the isolation gear off and on takes so much time. We also use telemedicine now a lot in terms of being able to interact with the patients who are COVID positive, um, which saves a lot of time in terms of going in and out of the room. Nurses, of course, are, are taking on a little more so that other professions such as venipuncture, maybe environmental services, won't have to go into the room quite as much. And some days are better than others, but I think there's a lot of tired bodies at the end of the day. We come in, we meet as a team in the morning, so all the nurses get together, we hear about every patient, so you have kind of a minimal understanding of what is going on with everybody, and then we get our patient. We're still able to have one nurse, one patient in the ICU, which is good because they need a lot of care. So you get yours and you hear about how their previous shift has gone, whether that's day or night, to kind of hear their medical history, what's going on, what their clinical picture looks like at the time. What's really important, especially with all of the conversation about PPE, is to care cluster. So that's doing as much as you can in chunks. So we try to prepare for the first couple of hours. So every medicine that we think we're going to need, every supply that we want, we try to bring into the room. There's a very specific process for putting on all the PPE required. So we do that in a buddy system. So someone else is watching for you to make sure that you're safe. Usually there's gowns, there's gloves, there's mask and uh, goggles. You go in the room and do an initial assessment. So we're looking at, I try to get like a baseline. So I want to know what my patient looks like, kind of where their body's at. They're not where their numbers are at in terms of heart rate, kind of just a baseline to move forward with. Because a lot of health and a lot of responding in the ICU is like sort of subtle things. So you want to look for like these little clinical changes and just get them set up for the day, like looking comfortable. Most of our patients are not interactive, but they want them to be in like a comfortable spot and a safe spot. So then you give them the medicines um, and you get that assessment taken care of and do some charting. And then we meet as a team. So physicians, respiratory therapists and nursing and pharmacy, we get together and we talk about a plan for the day. And then the rest of the day is sort of like making that plan happen with the adjustments that come through emergencies. So um, a lot of times we're in the room for multiple hours at a time just to conserve. You can put a mask on and stay in the room four hours at a time is better than like coming in and out using multiple. So we have really been like fortunate and blessed to be able to have people available to bring you supplies. You can stay in the room and keep, keep taking care of the patient. Do you all have enough PPE right now? We do. Yeah, we do. And UVA is really um, wonderful in terms of keeping us informed about PPE levels and educating us to make sure that we know exactly how we're to use it. How do you feel at the end of a shift treating a bunch of patients suffering with this disease? Um, (laughs) uh, I think exhausted is a good word. Uh, Proud is a good word. I work in the medical ICU, which is split between corona and regular medicine patients. But the hospitals really become a team. So we're getting people who normally do chest surgery, who normally do neurology, and just watching people like put aside their egos to take care of the patients or put aside their preferences to take care of the patients. I am so proud of the people that I've worked with. What are some of the typical symptoms of the COVID patients that you all are taking care of? 
Shortness of breath, respiratory symptoms can sometimes be there, um, fevers, body aches, um, general weakness. You know, most COVID patients are able to recover at home. Um, when we see patients here in the hospital, often they don't just have COVID-19. They may have a um, pneumonia or some of their underlying medical conditions such as diabetes or kidney disease. Any of that type of stuff may be giving a problem as well. Most of them do need some type of respiratory support, fluids, obviously really close monitoring of vital signs, um, their labs, but staff just kind of keep a very close watch on them and, and get them the care they need and, and the support because it can be a really scary time for the patient. The presentation can be pretty varied. Once they get to us, usually people have like a profound amount of respiratory failure, so really struggling to breathe. But that is like a minority of these patients, so I can't speak to the majority. So once they come to us, usually they're sicker. So usually they're having a difficulty breathing, at which time we're worried about them not being able to keep up with just how much work that is. Um, And so we want to support them with a breathing machine. What's it like being in a hospital with no visitors? It was a bit eerie at first. It was very quiet. There was a lot less traffic in the in the lobbies and in the halls, but we're kind of getting used to it now, but it was a definite change. Has that changed the communication part of your job? Um, yes, we have really worked to be able to have families communicate via phone um, since they're not able to be with their loved ones. And so we do we do carve out like a significant chunk of time. Sometimes you just can't because the patients are too sick, but as much as we're able to communicate with the families, even just call in and leave the phone next to their loved one's ear so they can talk to them, even if they can't hear them, just that sort of thing, um, just for them to be able to have be like a, in some way available. So let's say that you have a cough and shortness of breath, you call your primary care physician or your nurse practitioner, and they say you should go to the emergency room. What happens when you get to the UVA ER with COVID symptoms? Well, you will be um, greeted by a nurse who will do a, a screening um, with you. And, you know, if you're an ambulatory, not too severely short of breath, um, if, if you're stable, they, they may send you over to the COVID clinic. Um, if you're feeling a little sicker or they um, would like to see you in the emergency room, they would admit you to a private room and the staff would get your vital signs and draw some labs and maybe give you an IV, um, definitely give you some oxygen if you needed that. You may get a test for COVID, which is a swab test, which would either be um, by your mouth or nasal swab. Your doctors would see you, but they may use telemedicine to check in on you um, just to um, cut down on the interaction in your room. What is it like when a patient passes away from COVID-19? Um, heartbreaking, sad. Sad is a um, is a weak word. We do try and have at least one or two family members at the bedside if, if they would like to come in. Um, as with any death, nurses try to really provide as much support and compassion as we can, especially at this time. And, and, you know, COVID can be a very, very scary thing. But, you know, trying to keep the patient comfortable is very important and, and just being that support for the whole family. We try really hard to be with them through every, with every patient, through every difficulty. So the point at which they get sedation medicines and are not interactive anymore, we try to be there with them. And um, if they do pass away, we are there holding your hand and supporting them. But it is really sad because you want someone to be able to have the people around them that they love. Are you personally worried about catching COVID-19? You know, the thought is in your mind during the day, but 
wearing the right PPE, washing your hands, those things have been shown to protect people. And um, I think the same is true here in the hospital. It's been more than a month since we've been doing this now. Um, So looking back, I think initially it's something that I just had to work through um, and just take a couple of days and a couple of pretty intense moments to say like, what do I believe? What do I believe about life and death? What do I believe about living? And then move forward from that. Cause I think living in fear is a trap. We are fragile people and I could definitely get the coronavirus. And I think we take it seriously. Like it is something to have a healthy respect of and say like, this is a very serious illness for some people. It's very, very serious, but I think living in fear can really make us unwise. What about your job these days is frustrating. Um, yeah, as I think as an ICU nurse, we tend to fall in this category of like type A organized, driven, routine, controlled environment types. Um, and that is, that is gone now. That is crushed. Um, (laughs) so this is a time for all of us, like whether you work in ICU or not, or whether you work in general medicine or not, that, um, consistency is gone. Like that is true for my neighbors. It's true for me. I was thinking about it yesterday and like my my foundation that I have in my relationship with Jesus is the only thing that has not changed in the past couple of weeks. Um, and so I feel like that can lend itself to frustration. I think as this whole process has unfolded, what I've come to is that there are a lot of things that can be frustrating, but I cannot sit and list them. Like I cannot sit and think about them because we are not New York city. We have not suffered anywhere near that. And I think that the struggle is, it is tangible here and, this is not easy for anyone, but we have so much to be thankful for that I think it's choosing in these moment by moment frustrations to say like the whole world is in flex and we're going to be kind and we're going to be gracious and it's the things that matter matter. And if not, like we got to let it go. Um, and so that, yeah, has been like quite the learning experience, but really good at the same time. And then in work, we try to laugh a lot. We try to, like, take the take the jokes and run with them. Our, like, nurse meme game is really strong. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I, uh, I made a dance for when the coronavirus swabs come back negative. So I'm trying to to catch on. It has not caught on. Um, but any day now, I'm sure that people will be doing that. But, yeah, just, like, taking, taking the celebrations through what they are and enjoying the things that are good. What misconceptions do you think the public has about COVID-19? There's a lot of stuff on the internet. I I was looking the other day, everything from drinking alcohol can cure COVID-19 to drinking tea, vitamin C, getting out in the sun. I think you have to really watch your source in terms of information. You know, go with some of the the reliable sources like the World Health Organization or maybe CDC. Um, but yeah, everything is kind of out there. Just watch watch the source of your information. What can the public do to support healthcare workers right now? There has been an overwhelming surge of food coming into the hospital for the employees. Lots of real positive emails. Um, people have made masks, and all of that has been so appreciated. But I guess the most important thing is for the public to try and keep themselves safe so they don't end up as a patient here. You know, wash your hands and social distancing and and all those things, they they really make a difference. One of the big things for me personally has been people reaching out without expectation of a return. Um, Just like coming home from work and sitting outside my house and answering like texts that are just like, how are you? We are praying for you. We are thinking about you. Like, what do you need? The outpouring of love when I can't be as involved in people's lives right now has been really um, just huge. 
And then something that has been meaningful that's a little more subtle um, has been people looking out for the people that I love. So the people that are calling and checking on my parents. My grandpa, the like nursing facility that he lives in, got him to FaceTime my parents. I can't go see them. I can't be a part of their lives, but I know that other people are loving the people that I love has been just really big for me. Shout out people that are staying home. I think that is a huge deal. Like I think that that is not necessarily recognized for how hard that is. Like I get a lot of like, wow, you're going to work. Yeah, it is not an easy job, but your job is not easy. Staying home with your toddlers all day, every day is a hard job. Um, And so I think just like we appreciate you and we recognize that you staying home is not easy or fun. I just can't emphasize enough the the wonderful team that is at UVA, everything from environmental services to the maintenance department, every department has stepped up to the plate and provided over and above. And that has been just such a rewarding um, experience. Thank you so, so much. We really appreciate it, both for talking to us and for caring for our loved ones when we can't. Kendall Barger is a nurse in UVA Hospital's Medical ICU, and Jodine Chisholm is a nurse manager on 3 Central. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. In our next segment, we catch up with Charlotte Woods from Charlottesville Tomorrow. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, Charlotte. So we've been living with COVID-19 for enough time now that I have completely lost track of the number of weeks or days it has been. So before we talk about a couple of the articles you've written, how would you describe some of the major effects of not just the pandemic here, but the social distancing and, and the economic effects in our area? The economic effects have been felt pretty harshly for service industry, tourism, college campuses. There's fortunately been some federal, state, and local um, financial relief packages, but it's it's a Band-Aid. It's not a cure-all. It's not a long-term fix. It's a quick fix. And so continuing to tell those stories, we'll continue to see kind of how people are able to financially help those who are most impacted as we get through this, because it's not just the small business owner, it's all the people that work for that person who's, who have been laid off or let go because of this. What do you think our community is going to look like in a month? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but just, you know, you've been talking to a lot of people in the community. I really don't know what it's going to look like in a month, but I do, I do believe for the next month, things are, they could end up very much the same, like we are in the same situation right now. I mean, the stay-at-home order is until June 10th at the earliest. It could be eased back a little bit, or it could be restricted even further or prolonged. Who knows if it's in a month, a month and a half, two months, or even longer, uh, when things do start opening back up. I think it will be very gradual, very cautious. Nothing is going to go back to normal overnight. I was wondering if you all had talked to anyone about the racial disparities in hospitalizations and fatalities in the Thomas Jefferson Health District. As of Wednesday night, they were reporting that 38% of deaths and 57% of hospitalizations in the Thomas Jefferson Health District were African-American people. That is actually something I can't answer yet because we are looking into it. It's something that we've got on our radar because initially when all these national outlets were reporting the racial disparity, we didn't know, we didn't have enough, there wasn't enough close to home data yet for us to do it as a local paper to look into it locally. 
So we've been kind of just keeping a pulse on it, trying to make sure we understand as things are developing. So right now we're still going to be looking into that. But yeah, I, I can't have a concrete answer just yet. So you recently put out an article about what impact this pandemic is having on housing costs in the area. We know UVA students have a huge impact on the housing market here, and they're not in the town right now. What impact is the pandemic having on housing costs? Usually when I report, I love when I have concrete, quantitative data and facts. This was a very qualitative, very speculative story. It's so ripe for follow-up. But it is definitely something to consider is the fact that like the rental market in this town is so heavily influenced by the university. So far, at least, as things have been going on, the different landlords I spoke to have been discussing. For the residents that have been able to pay, that's great, because at the end of the day, the landlords have to use rent money for maintenance costs, for basic funds needed to run and manage the properties. Um, And for those residents who have been financially impacted by COVID or who are students who have had to bounce out, they are working on payment plans and just sorting that out individually on case-by-case basis. What resources are available to people, students who are facing housing insecurity right now? So there are various nonprofit funds that have been set up in the last almost two months that we've been going through this for money to help with rent or to help with groceries or people to buy your groceries for you. There's obviously federal aid that came through with the stimulus check. Unemployment has been adapted to where people can have $600 a week for the next four months, I believe. But yeah, in terms of housing insecurity, no one will be evicted right now. As part of um, Northam's executive orders was that evictions will not be happening. But who's to say what will happen in a few months when things maybe do start to go back to normal? Will people who haven't been able to pay up until this point, will they suddenly face homelessness then? I, these are all really good questions to keep, uh, keep following up on. If students don't come back in the fall, are landlords expecting to lower rents? I think that is something they will consider. I did speak with one landlord who has already lowered rent on the one unit that he still needs to lease. He did speculate that there will be more units for rents by the late summer, early fall if students don't come back. The rents may be lower just to make something even more appealing, um, but you're going to have a lot of people probably doing that. So let's talk a little bit about the environmental impact of a stay-at-home order. Have we seen significant changes in air quality in our area now that there are fewer cars on the road? Yes. Um, It's not as drastic as some of the larger cities. We are a smaller area, so our changes may not look as big of a spike if you're plotting it out on a graph um, and looking at the numbers. But it is lower than it was last year. Around this same time, I got information from the local air quality monitoring station here in Albemarle County. Um, It is operated and managed and installed by the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality. With less cars on the road, with less of that carbon footprint, the air quality is a little bit better here. Are people in areas with more air pollution more likely to uh, experience severe cases of COVID-19? Yeah. So when you have lower air quality in your area, it already kind of makes a bit more of a breeding ground in your lungs and damages them and weakens them in different ways. So areas that have lower quality, you could have a higher risk of contracting COVID. Or um, if you do have COVID, you're going to have stronger symptoms just because you already have these. They always said that um, 
some of the most at-risk people are people with underlying medical conditions. And if you have poorer air quality that is impacting your your respiratory system, that's obviously going to make it harder for you to fight COVID. It's going to make your COVID symptoms present much more strongly. And you're definitely going to have a harder time breathing. So obviously better air quality is a good thing, but it's also a byproduct of a situation that's causing a lot of suffering. So when we're all able to move and go back to work again, is it possible to preserve some of these environmental benefits? I've spoken with a few people about what can we learn from COVID-19 going forward, just at least from an environmental standpoint. As this drags out, as this goes on, people will start to realize, oh, wow, we've been able to work from home for the most part in different um, career fields and sectors. Maybe some companies can implement partial um, work from home policies where, you know, maybe take a couple days a week where you work from home or certain people may always be able to work from home. Anything else you want to say on the environment? I guess something I'm really interested in is right now, the global pandemic has really thrown a wrench into budgeting for the state and for the city and the county. And it's a lot of really hard work that our elected officials are going to have to go through all over again to quickly get their budgets reset and reprioritized. But given that the city and the county and the state, all three set really ambitious emissions goals, the fact that these things were all in motion in place, then a global pandemic hit, it's changing the way everyone is addressing everything. Climate resiliency really does tie into and intersect with a lot of these other goals that people have in our local and state government. I'm really interested to see how that translates into the budget because obviously there will be things that need to be trimmed down or bookmarked for later or cut for this year. So lastly, let's talk about the police. How are the police enforcing the limit of 10 people in public gatherings? So we did a Q&A through email with police chief Rochelle Brackney. And she said they email the health department and contact business or residents by phone to inform the subject of the complaint. Um, repeat or subsequent violations sometimes might become a factor. And they say that the officer will physically have to visit the business if the telephone contact cannot be made. But for the most part, the police department is working on social distancing as much as possible. And then also worth noting is that traffic rules have not been suspended. So I know it's kind of tempting for some people to... Darn it. (laughs) ...when they are going out to speed because they think that, oh, well, hashtag COVID, there's no, no laws. But traffic rules have not been suspended. They are limiting face-to-face traffic stops. For the less serious offenses, they document you and you will be notified of your citation through the mail. We asked if there's been a noticeable uptick in domestic calls um, over any previous reporting periods just during the midst of all this. And we did get the answer, yes, there's been an uptick in domestic calls. One of our freelancers, Marie Ungar, she wrote a piece that has some information about resources and dealing with domestic violence um, during this time. If you're experiencing gender-based violence or family violence, there are a lot of resources in Marie's article. Two local resources are the Sexual Assault Resource Agency. You can reach them at 434-977-7273. And the Shelter for Help in Emergency. You can reach them at 434-293-8509. Charlotte Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center remains strong and resolute 
in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. In our final segment, one of our production assistants called up Umber Qureshi. She's an attorney with the National Immigration Project at the National Lawyers Guild. Our particular focus of the organization is on immigrants who have had some sort of contact with the, the criminal legal system. But we also represent, you know, immigrants who have no prior like, criminal histories as well. Uh, and in particular, you know, over the last few weeks, I've been working in response to the COVID-19 crisis and trying to get uh, people out of detention centers, particularly in the DMV. Can you give us some background information about what ICE is and how it operates in the U.S.? ICE is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. They are actually a sub-agency within the larger Department of Homeland Security, and they are responsible for the enforcement of U.S. immigration laws. And what that essentially means is that ICE will arrest people, detain people who are inside the United States who do not have authorization to be here. And one of the primary issues in especially like the COVID-19 crisis is that ICE continues to arrest and detain large numbers of people uh, and without protecting them from, from this pandemic. How many ICE detention centers are in the DMV area? I am not sure exactly, but we have a lawsuit pending in Maryland. We have filed on behalf of uh, folks detained in two facilities in Maryland, and then similarly in Virginia, our lawsuit involves two facilities. But it's also important to note that the facilities where ICE detains people aren't just solely for, for folks in ICE detention. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are actually jails that hold uh, people in pretrial detention. They will also have folks in, in ICE detention. And then often ICE contracts with private prison companies to hold folks in, in detention as well. So our lawsuit in, in Virginia, actually, uh, some of our clients are detained in Farmville Detention Center, which is actually a, is run by a private company. What are the conditions like in these detention centers? especially considering COVID-19? First of all, we know that there's no cure or vaccine for, for COVID-19. And we also know from the Center for Disease Control that the two ways really to avoid the disease is by practicing social distancing and maintaining good hygiene. And as you can imagine, you know, both of those are almost impossible in a detention setting and especially at ICA Farmville and in Caroline Detention Facility. And we know, you know, based on our clients' testimony that in each facility, people are sharing cells and bunk beds with with other people. There are around, I think, 40 to 100 people living together in each dorm in these facilities. They're utilizing shared spaces like telephone booths, cafeterias, bathrooms, showers. So there's really no way to maintain like six feet of distance that we've been all been advised to do uh, from one another when you're detained. You know, we also know that shared spaces aren't being sanitized properly or regularly. You know, our clients have mentioned not being provided hand sanitizer, soap, and like, protective equipment like masks, gloves. You know, you and I can't get some of these things from our local stores, so it's really no surprise that there's a shortage of these products in the detention facilities. Are guards or ICE officers likely to spread the virus among those who are being detained? Absolutely. And, you know, we know that an outbreak 
is inevitable in in these places. You know, as you mentioned, like guards and staff will constantly come in and out of these facilities every day from areas where there are COVID-19 cases. And uh, they aren't being tested every single day that they come in and out, which is really what needs to happen to protect people. Uh, And also, actually, detained people are being transferred into these facilities, even from hotspots like New York. And, you know, public health experts, which mentioned in our lawsuits, have repeatedly said that it's only a matter of time until these facilities are rampant with uh, with COVID-19 outbreaks. And we're already seeing them happen in detention centers in areas that were a bit that were a bit ahead of the DMV generally in COVID cases. So, for example, areas like New York and California are now seeing huge spikes in COVID nineteen outbreaks in in these facilities. And we've also actually seen a huge spike in cases in the Virginia correctional system. So, when we first filed our complaint less than two weeks ago. There were about four cases in the state prison system, and now they're close to 500. Do folks who are detained have access to health care? A very limited health care. So there are medical staff and nurses at each facility, but we have heard a lot of complaints from, from folks who are, who are detained that the medical care isn't adequate. It's also important to note that the effect of such an outbreak would obviously be devastating for everyone in these facilities, you know, including the detained people, the medical staff, the guards, but it would also be absolutely terrible for the communities where these facilities are. So first, like I mentioned, like staff are going to be infected and bring those infections into the community. And then second, and sort of more in response to, to your point, you know, once there's an outbreak, the people who are detained and who exhibit extreme symptoms are going to need to be hospitalized in local hospitals because the ICE medical care doesn't have the capacity to hold them. And so once they go into local hospitals, they're going to need to use ICU beds and ventilators that are already in short supply. And so especially, you know, given that these detention centers are in rural areas where uh, there may not be as many hospitals or medical supplies available, you know, it really makes no sense to keep vulnerable people detained in conditions where they're more likely to contract COVID-19, not be able to receive adequate health care in the facilities, so they'll need to be transferred to local hospitals and then use up like those limited resources. Can you tell us about your lawsuit with the National Immigration Project against ICE? Uh, yeah, so we uh, filed about less than two weeks ago, and it was our organization uh, along with the Capital Area Immigrants' Rights Coalition and the Legal Aid Justice Center, those three organizations filed this lawsuit on behalf of nine immigrants detained at ICA Farmville and the Caroline Detention Facility in Virginia. All of our clients are highly vulnerable because of their age or underlying medical conditions if they contract uh, COVID-19. And so we've asked the court to order their release from detention. So we are proceeding on an emergency basis and we're hoping because this is a matter of life or death for our clients that we have a resolution as soon as possible. We are scheduled for a hearing with the court this Friday, April 24th at 10 a.m. And this week we are briefing the court on, on these issues that, you know, some of which we're talking about right now. Do you know if other jurisdictions have released people detained by ICE because of COVID? There are lots all over the country. Numerous courts have held in very similar lawsuits to that 
uh, because these detention centers are you know, fundamentally ill-equipped to handle uh, the threat that this pandemic poses to medically vulnerable people, that folks need to be released and be protected. This isn't an exhaustive list of courts in New York, in California, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in Texas. For like some of those also, the court specifically said that it doesn't matter if COVID-19 has actually reached those facilities because we know that once it does reach, you know, it becomes a matter of, of life or death for, for these plaintiffs. And it might be even too late for some people by the time that, that a confirmed case actually shows up in these facilities. What are some ways that people in Central Virginia can support these efforts and support their community members who are undocumented at this time? It would be great if, if folks could support our litigation and also uh, especially like the broader Freedom All movement and campaign. So you can you know use the hashtag Freedom All to support the campaign to free people from immigration detention in this country, especially during this pandemic, because we recognize that you know, no human should be subjected to the conditions that our clients and, and hundreds of others are subjected to in these facilities, especially in the middle of, of the pandemic. You know, our, our lawsuit is only on behalf of nine people detained in in Virginia, but the urgency of the threat that uh, COVID-19 poses, because of that, like, ICE really needs to release all people suffering uh, in detention, you know, starting with elderly and people who are most medically vulnerable. And, and that's exactly what doctors, public health experts, and even former ICE officials have been urging for, for weeks. So I would say, like, for, for people who want to, to be involved, you know, definitely amplify this incredible movement and campaign. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. If you have concerns or questions about the coronavirus in our area, you can tweet us at CVL Soundboard. My name's Mary Garner McGee, production assistance this week by Victoria. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marona Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. <laughs>